Man, I want to welcome you back to Redeemer. If you are a first-time guest, welcome you here for the first time. And if you're not a first-time guest, thank you for being with us again. We're continuing in our series through the book of Ephesians, Doctrine That Dances. And so I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be looking at two verses, verses 15 through uh, 16. This is the word of the Lord. And for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a great comfort and reminder that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess on earth, under the earth, that he is Lord to the praise of your glory. What a sweet privilege that we can sing that song right now and mean it. We can sing it forgetting that he is enthroned and that song reminds us that, that all are at his feet, that, that the earth is a footstool, that a day is coming when the knees of Satan and his demons, they will buckle and they will have to confess that Christ is the Lord to the praise of the Father. How sweet it is that we can sing that right now not under uh, coercion, but simply because we believe it. We truly believe that you are the redeemer of your people. And so bless us now as we continue to learn more about you and your ways. Be with your servant. Be with us as we listen. May we be not only hearers, but doers thereof. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, this weekend, I got a chance to watch The Pursuit of Happiness with my children for the first time. My wife and I watched a movie uh, several years ago and felt like, man, this is time for them to kind of know this movie and see it. it. It was formative for us. And in case you haven't seen the movie, it's been out for a while, but it's the story of a man by the name of Chris Gardner. Chris Gardner, it's a true story. Chris Gardner was a man who invested all of his life savings into uh, these portable bone density scanners. And so the character is he's played by Will Smith and Will Smith's little boy I think his name is Jaden. He plays the, the, the son in the movie. But uh, he invests his entire life savings in portable bone density scanners. And he thinks that he's going to make it. He's going to become wealthy and rich. And he doesn't. He's stuck with a house full of bone density scanners. He's not selling them at a rate that enables him to take care of his family. And, uh, and you can imagine that, that he's stuck with all of this stuff. He's trying to sell it to doctors, and doctors are hesitant to buy it because x-ray machines can do the work, and they're cheaper, and everything unravels. His wife leaves him. He goes into debt. He can't pay his taxes. He's evicted from his uh, apartment, and then he's evicted from a motel when the government steps in and seizes his assets. They take everything out of his checking account, and, uh, and that was a low point in the movie. And he eventually makes it. He comes out of it. It is kind of a started from the bottom, now we're here type movie. It's a rags to riches type movie. He makes it. He becomes a stockbroker in one of the most famous stockbroking firms. But it depicts the struggle. And when he's at the bottom of his life, he's toting around these things, can't sell them, and he's forced with nowhere to stay. And so he gets his son, and they go into a, a truck. Uh, um, a train station, and he sits down on a bench, and he just doesn't know what to do. Where do we live? Where do we lay our heads? And he starts to call his son to use his imagination. He, his son thinks that this is a portable time device, right? 
And so he pushes the button and makes his son close his eyes and says, when you wake up, we'll, we'll be in Jurassic Park. And the son post pushes the button and he opens up and they're still in the train station, but imagination starts to work. And, and you see this beautiful story of this father and this son. They have very little, but their imagination takes them to this other world. And so they're able to kind of role play and they're ducking, dodging pterodactyls. And finally, the father says, hey, we need to find cover. We need to find shelter. We need a cave. And his son says, there's a cave right there. And of course, he's pointing to a bathroom. And he walks inside the bathroom and he locks the door and he sleeps on a bathroom floor. And his son lays in his lap and you just see the tears falling because he can't provide. And so the next day, his son is like, Dad, can we stay there again? He says, no, something, son, you do one time, and one time's enough, right? And so he starts to look for somewhere to stay. His friends won't let him stay there. And he finally goes to a shelter, and the lady lets him in. And, and the lady says, well, he can stay, but you can't. This is a women's and child shelter. You, can't come, you, you both can't come. And he makes this statement. He says, we come together, and we can't be separated. And so as much as the movie is about his success, it's also about this inseparable bond between this father and son. They end up sleeping in motels. They end up sleeping in uh, bathrooms. They end up sleeping in shelters. And in the end, they make it. But I think that when you look at the amount of time that the movie spends on all the things that it zones in on their bond. He will not let his son go. They come together. They're inseparable. I mention that because this morning we're going to talk about two things that in Jesus's mind and in Paul's mind, they're inseparable. It's unhealthy. It's unwise. It's unbiblical and it's ungodly to separate these two things that Paul talks about in our passage this morning. Now, what, the way I want to get at it is to give you a little context about where we are in Ephesians. We have finished that long sentence, that one long sentence from verses 3 through 14. We're now turning a corner here, and we are now in a prayer. And if you'll notice verses 15 of chapter 1 all the way through verse 23, that this is Paul's prayer. So right now we're in a prayer, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to split the prayer up. We're going to look at these two verses this week. And then the next week, we're going to look at uh, verses 17, 17 through 23. And here's why. In these first two verses, there is praise. And praise is a part of prayer. That when we come to our Father in prayer, that, that we're taught to pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'm praising the name of the Father, right? And then also in, in normal praying, there are petitions, things that we're asking for. And I want you to look at what Paul's doing because this prayer can be broken up into two parts. The first two verses, th there's praise. And then the last seven verses, I guess it's seven verses, from 17 through 23, he's asking God for something. And so what I want to do is sort of... Uh, the first point, if you want to take notes, is this unexpected joy, this unexpected praise, this unceasing praise that Paul talks about that he has. And you see it in our passage. Now, what I want to do is I want you to act like you don't know what's here. And I want you to maybe if you if I, if I could give you a permanent marker, I will have you scratch out part of this phrase. And I just want you to see what's happening here. Notice what he says, for this reason, because I have heard, don't, 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 don't look at what he's heard, right? Don't look there yet. 
Just look at what I've heard and then look at what he heard and how it responded. Look at verse 7, 16. Because of what I've heard, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. So right there, Paul's heard something and whatever he heard, it caused him to never cease praising God because of what he heard. Now, here's the thing we got to wrestle with. Why in the world is Paul hearing about this church secondhand? Why can't he himself go down there to Ephesus or Asia Minor and get firsthand accounts of what's going on? It's because, and you'll see it in the book of Ephesians. I'd invite you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. And look, at, I'll give you time. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Go to verse 21. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing Tychicus, the beloved brother, the faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So turn back over to Ephesians. What we believe, when Paul says, I've heard something about you, he's heard this through this man, Tychicus, that, that, that Paul sends to Ephesus to check on the church. Paul has been there and he stayed there two years and worked and preached the gospel, and now he's not there anymore. And now he says, okay, I can't get there, but Tychicus, I want you to go, and you go, and you tell me how they're doing. Now, the question is, why can't Paul himself go and check on the church? It's because Paul is in Rome. Paul is in Rome at the time. Now, here's a map. I'm not assuming that you, uh, yeah, here's a map. So Asia Minor is right there. You see where it's yellow, kind of right there to my right. And you see the, the purple boot. That, that's Italy. And Rome is like right over there, right? So that's where Paul is. He's up top left. And, and the church is over here in Asia Minor. That's why he can't get there. Now, the question that we have to ask is, why is he in Rome? He is in Rome because he is in prison. All right. Thank you, Jimmy. He's in prison. If you read Acts 28, how the book of Acts ends, Paul has made his appeal to the highest court in the land of that day. And it would have been Nero and Nero would have been ruling in Rome. And so Paul spends the last two years of his life in prison on house arrest, with a guard strapped to him. And he has freedom, right? He has freedom, access to people for him to proclaim the gospel and for people to come and go. But Paul himself cannot go. He is locked down in a prison and will die within a year and a half after he writes this. He knows that the clock is ticking. He is about to die. Jesus has told him, I have told you how much you will suffer for my name. They will kill you. And it is in the context of being in prison, awaiting persecution, that he says, I cannot stop praising you. Like, think about, think about the image. You're sitting there in prison about to die and you know you will never leave. And in the prison, he says, look at what he says. Because I've simply heard about you. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Think about that. Think that is like Christian joy, isn't it? 
that in the middle of a cell, that this cell turns into this place of worship where you can hear these things about God. And even when things are bad, when the things of the world are stripped away, you still have Jesus and you still have everything. And God is still at work and he has not abandoned you. Paul sees he's been preaching this gospel to them that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us as adoption to adoption as sons and daughters. Like Paul gets this, that I have an inheritance that is unshakable, that is undefiled. And so when he's in the prison cell going through hell, He's able to praise God. That's real joy. When things are bad, you can bless his name. I'm going to tell you, I wasn't there last night, right? Man, my wife's car just broke down at Whole Foods, and I'm thinking I can get it going and drive home, and it breaks down on me again. And I got to sit over there on Ridgewood Road for an hour waiting on a tow truck, and it's starting to rain, and... My daughter was in the emergency room yesterday morning. She just breaks out in some rash from somewhere, and we just don't know. And I'm telling you, I was mad yesterday. I was just sitting there fuming mad. I did not want to praise him. And then passages like this, right? Whatever I'm going through, my God is still on the throne. I'm a child. I'm, I'm loved by him. This is unexpected joy, right? That, that is ours in Christ. Now, here's a question that, that I think we ought to ask of the text, that whatever it is that causes a prisoner to praise, it's worth our slowing down to see it. See, there's one way we can look at this. We can just read this. Man, Pastor L, man, you need to make it through the book of Ephesians. You, can, you need to cover more work. You can't just do two verses at a time, right? But then when you're like, man, he's in prison and he's praising I kind of want to dig into what is it that brings a prisoner joy? And you see it right here. Paul says it. It's their faith in Jesus and their love for all the saints. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, the saints, that's why I don't stop praising the Lord. In other words, his joy, his praise, it's coming from something he's heard. And whatever he's heard is praiseworthy. And here's what he heard. He praised God because of their faith in the Lord. Now, when we talk about faith, faith gets it gets thrown around, right? All in society and in culture. I was at Jackson State and we would have an interfaith gospel choir. And what that meant, if you were a Christian or a professing Christian, then you all got together Tuesdays and Thursdays and you sang and you did shows, right? But you've also have interfaith dialogues, right? And that's when you don't have to be Christian. You can be Buddhist. You can be atheist. You can be Muslim, I mean, any, any, anything, right? And you get together and you want to have these dialogues, right? There's also, I'm sure you had a homeboy or a homegirl. They, they go through hard times and, and they're not believers, right? I got to keep the faith. I got to keep the faith, right? What they're really saying is I got to be strong for me right now. Faith always has an object, right? And so when we use this word faith, I think we got to be really careful to how would Paul have used it and for Paul, when th th this whole idea that they have, they are, they have um, trusted in the Lord Jesus, their faith in Jesus, that it always involves two parts. It's always two parts. It's truth 
something about God that God is revealing. And it's trust. It's, it's in the words of J.I. Packer, it's, it's credence and it's commitment. It's something that God reveals about himself that demands me to reckon with that truth and then to rest and respond in a manner that is requisite with faith. And so you see it all over the Bible, right? That when God comes to Moses, Moses, I'm the Lord your God. You got to leave your father's land and you got to follow me and I will make your name great and I will give you land and I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Like, like the, the faith, it, it has to reckon with truth. God is coming to him. This is true. You, I am the Lord. I created everything and I want to treat you graciously and kindly. Now you leave and you follow and, and, and Abraham has to leave. It has to he has to put some, some boots on the ground and walk out, right, and trust the Lord even and believe that the Lord will keep his word. It's the same thing with, with Noah, right? Noah, God comes to Noah, hey, I want you to build an ark. I'm the Lord your God. Build an ark and build it. And you and your family will go into it because I'm going to destroy the entire earth with water. Can you imagine what he has to, like, reconcile? He has to start building this ark that would take years upon years when, when it's sun outside and it doesn't look like rain is coming. But he has the truth and the re revelation of the, of the father that comes to him and he has to, to act in a way that, that, that it's this idea that God is revealing something and I have to respond accordingly. It involves risk, sometimes danger, but the object of our trust is greater than anything we might face. And so here's this idea that God is not coming to you and I saying, hey, Miss Shirley, I want you to go build an ark. You know, he just, he, th that's not what he's doing. What he has done is, hey, I'm righteous and I'm holy. And you were born in sin. And I judge sin. The wages of sin is death. And every time you go to a funeral, it is declaring that I am true and right that you do not see 300-year-old people walking around the earth. The question is why? Because the wages of our sin is death, and it's not just a physical death. It is a spiritual death. We are born condemned, and God is saying, but there's a way. There's a way where I will condemn death, and I will condemn sin, and I will make you righteous, and I don't want you to run into an ark. I don't want you to, to run for this distant land. I want you to run towards my son. I want you to run Run into him. He will be your refuge. He will be your shield. He will be your strength. He will be your portion. He will be your righteousness. In him, I will judge sin. And God is saying, this is what I am proclaiming, this truth statement. And every person has to take that and you have to reconcile that. You have to listen to that and say that, hey, maybe just maybe God is telling the truth and I'm off here. And God is calling me to not just know this stuff, but to rest and to act and to shift allegiance, to shift trust where I don't trust in me, but I trust in what he's doing and has done for me in Jesus. Right. So when Paul says they believe in Jesus, that's what that's what he's getting at. That when you look at all of these things that, that people might say that God, Jesus is a teacher or a miracle maker or all these other things that, that what Paul says, hey, he is that. But he's to be trusted in and rested in and not just known about. There's a story, uh, there's, there's a, a book by the name of How to Speak to Youth and Keep Them Awake at the Same Time. <laughs> and it's written by a man named Ken Davis. And I read it several years ago. I read through it. Um, 
And he tells the story of a college student who's given this assignment. And he's, he's working, he, he, the, the student is in a class, uh, a speech class, and the assignment is you have to creatively present on a topic that, that moves uh, the classroom. In other words, you, you will be graded on not just what you say, not just your content, but also your creativity. And so the student decides, I want to teach about the law of the pendulum. And so he, he comes to school, he comes to the classroom, and he, he gets his piece of string, and it, he ties it uh, and holds it in his hand, and he takes this, to this kid's toy, and he ties it to the bottom of the string, and he kind of does this. He, he pulls it over here, lets it go, and of course it does this, and it does this, and it does this, it does this, and then it stops. And he says, this is the law of the pendulum. And he says, rule number one is wherever you release it from, it will never come back to that height. If you release it from here, the next time it comes back, it's going to be here, here, until it gets to a point of rest called equilibrium. He says, this is just gravity at work. Every time the arc will change and it will, it will want to come to a place of rest. And he goes on and on and on explaining it. And he showed it. And so finally the class applauds him and he's done a really good job, really good job. And he says, well, I'm not done quite yet. And so he asks a teacher, he says, teacher, can I borrow your table? And he takes the table and pushes it back to, against the wall, the front of the class, and he puts a chair on the table and he asks the professor if he would sit in the chair. And the professor says, sure, not knowing what was going on. And so at this point, he pulls out this bag and in this bag, he has this parachute cord that can hold up to 500 pounds. So he takes the parachute cord out of his bag and he slings it on top of the rafter in the room and it comes back down. And so now he's tugging it. Then he takes out some free weights. He has about 250 pounds of free weights that he pulls out of his book bag and he puts it right there and he ties them on the end of the parachute cord. And now he's made a makeshift, real life, real size pendulum. And guess what he does? He says, Professor, now I want you, I want you to hold it. I'm gonna put this in your hand and I want you to put it up to your nose and then I want you to let it go. And the professor did it. And, and before he let it go, he asked the class, do you still believe in the law of the pendulum? And the class says, yes. He says, OK, well, let's, let's, let's test it one more time. Professor puts it here, lets it go, and it makes this huge noise. And it starts to come back. And the professor bailed like he jumped out of the chair, right? <laughs> and at the end of the presentation, he asked, he says, do we really believe in the law of the pendulum? He was trying to make a point about the pendulum and faith. And what he was saying was that, 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 that if we know this law is true and we've accepted it as true and it requires that we do more than mentally assent to this knowledge, but it demands that we sit there and it might get hard and it might get scary, but we're sitting right there not moving because we know the law. What Paul is saying, these Christians, they're sitting right there, resting in Jesus. And it's scary. And they're going to get persecuted and they're ostracized. But Paul says, I praise God because you're resting in Jesus. That's praiseworthy, says Paul. Now, that's not the only thing that he sees that's praiseworthy. Look at the next, the next phrase. It says, your love towards all the saints. Now, if you're like, if you have a Bible like me, that when you write there at the word love, there's a number. My number is six. And if you go to the bottom, it says some manuscripts omit your love. And if that were the case, then you would read this verse like, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord 
and your faith towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, the reason why your translator chose to put in love, your love for the saints back in there is, I think, for several reasons. One, it doesn't make sense, right? Paul never commends people for trusting in people. That's just, that's just not Pauline theology. The second thing is when you turn over to a sister book of Ephesians, which is Colossians, turn over to Colossians chapter 1, and I want to show you Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. Now, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, and Philemon, they make up what we call the prison epistles. These are the four epistles that Paul wrote from prison. And so some of the same themes are going to be key in all four books. But look at Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. I could show it to you in one more verse, but because of this, we believe that this was a copying error. That in Paul's day, they did not have um, printers. They did not have copiers. That you would dictate a letter and someone would write it. And if you wanted multiple letters, you have to get multiple writers. And multiple writers are writing from what somebody else wrote. And so there's this idea that, that through this process, a word can be left off. And so what your Bible is saying, some manuscripts have it and some don't. But because some do have it, because you see it in Colossians and because it doesn't make theological sense to not have it. That's why we're putting it back in there. And I believe it's in there for a reason. Paul praised the Lord because of their faith in Jesus. He also praises them for their love for the saints. Now, what does it mean love for the saints? Aren't we Christians supposed to love the world, love the lost, love our enemies? So, so why is Paul particular about what he writes right here? I praise God for you because you love all the saints. It's because this section is attached to the previous section. You remember what Paul talked about in, in the first part of Ephesians, that you've been adopted? You as an individual, if you have put your hope and trust in Christ, you as an individual person, you have been reconciled to God and adopted as an individual into his household. But here's the thing. God the Father is doing the largest mass adoption under the heavens. He is not just adopting me and then you as individuals. He is adopting us into his family. We have a common father. If we have trusted in Christ and he is our father, you know what that makes us? Regardless of how you vote, regardless of your skin color, regardless of how much money you have, you know what that makes us. If we have all been reconciled to Jesus, it makes us brothers and sisters. If you wanted to get tore down in my house, you show love and affection for a friend before your own flesh and blood. That you get, man, we would get torn up if we got caught over here going out of the way to please a friend and do stuff for a friend and we forgot to love my own sister, my own brother, you got torn up. Why? Because we're saying your blood comes first. You're, it's not that you don't have friends and love friends, but your blood comes first. That's what Paul is saying. You have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and your blood comes first. Adoption into the family. Now, the reason Cyril read that passage about Jesus and demons, it wasn't so much about that section. 
but it was about that passage. You remember when Jesus' mother and brothers, Jesus is over here kicking it with his disciples at a table and they're eating and he's teaching and his mother and his flesh and blood brothers, they show up. Jesus, your mother and your brothers want you. Jesus, they want you. And you, did you hear what Jesus said? My mother and my brothers are at this table with me right now. They are those who do the will of God. You see what Jesus did? He was saying that our earthly families, that, 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 that they matter, they're important, but he has done something great. And oftentimes, here's the case, especially in Ephesus, when you were in love with Jesus and identified with Jesus and identified with his body, you were outcast by the rest of the world. That that's just, that's just how it went, that there was a transfer of allegiance. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. They're going to persecute you. They're going to hurt you. They're going to joke you. They're going to harm you. And your mother might disown you. But you'll get mothers and you'll get fathers and you'll get brothers and you'll get sisters right here in my family, the church. When I became a believer, I, I was, it was several years after college, and it was really hard. It was hard for a, a lot of different reasons, man. I, I, was, I was just kind of ratchet and trifling, you know, just, I, I was not a believer my whole life, and I had a later conversion, and uh, if that's you, then you can probably relate to that that you have a certain set of friends and you, your certain set of friends, you have certain gods that you worship and certain places you go and certain things you do and, and, and you're known in this circle that this becomes your identity. And so when you, you talk about believing in Jesus and you talk about trying to be in that space where you wanna go to church, where you see sin and you call sin out, where you don't wanna fall, you, you wanna fight your sin and you wanna preach the good news that, that it's met with opposition, it's met with persecution, it's met with taunting, right? That, that they, were, they were hostile to me, right? And here's the thing, I lost a lot of friends. And it wasn't because I was better than them. We were going in two different directions. And you know what I found? I gained friends. An all-white church in Cincinnati, Ohio, when this little black boy who had never been in an all-white setting, my neighborhood was all black. My high school was all black. My college I went to was an HBCU, and here I am, in that moment, I'm an outcast to my very own culture. And it was this white church over here where I went and they loved me and they corrected me and they, they graciously taught me the gospel and they invited me in their homes on Sundays after dinner. They, they, I mean, they were beautiful to me for an entire year until I moved. And I was afraid, like, I'm moving. How will I do? How will I exist? And I moved to Madisonville, Kentucky. I bet you don't know where it is, right? Moved there, working for the same company, and worried. You know what? I found an Eastview Missionary Baptist Church, all black, the, the, the absolute other end of the spectrum. I preached my first trial sermon there, and the mothers of the church would wear their hats. They found out I was single, 
They were trying to hook me up with their grandbabies, right? <laughs> then they found out I was engaged, and they threw a baby shower for my wife, I mean a bridal shower for my wife. They made casseroles and brought them to church every Sunday and made sure that the, 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 the pastor or the, uh, the, uh, the associate minister could get some food. They loved me. They made room for me. They welcomed me into the family. And it was not about race. It was not about money. It was about the blood of Jesus that made us united to each other. When Paul says, I praise the Lord for your love for all the saints, you want to know what's behind it? They get it. You've been adopted and you've been adopted and you've been adopted and you've been adopted into a family. And this is how family behave. Now, here's the question, the third question. Why is this praiseworthy? Why is there faith in Jesus where they're resting? And why is there love for the saints and they're, and they're doing it? Why is this praiseworthy? Because it's the evidence of conversion. And it's an important piece of fruit that always accompanies it. There's a survey performed by Lifeway, and I don't always trust surveys, but this survey was actually commissioned by Ligonier Ministries, and Ligonier is the ministry of R.C. Sproul. And so for the past uh, four years, they have been doing this massive study, and they started it in, in 2014, they picked it back up in 2016. In 2014, they, they wanted to do a, a theological awareness benchmark, and in 2016, they wanted to do another one, the State of American Theology, and, and here's what they, they were after. They were after the current theological awareness of adult Americans. And, and here's what they did it, and they did it under seven or six categories. The first category was beliefs about God, beliefs about human goodness and sin, beliefs about salvation and the Bible, beliefs about heaven and hell, beliefs about the church, and beliefs about authority. And so they interviewed thousands of people. If you want to go and look at this survey, it's really impressive. Just go to www.thestateoftheology.com. It's really interactive. You can look at the white paper. You can look at all the data. And here, it, I won't go through it, but they actually interviewed professing Christians. And here is the takeaway. Many self-professing Christians reject foundational evangelical beliefs. The survey re results reveal that the biblical worldview of professing Christians is fragmenting. There was a 10% increase in professing Christians holding to unorthodox and contradictory beliefs in only two years. Not only are Americans evidencing increasingly wrong beliefs, they are growing more adamant in holding to these wrong beliefs. You hear what he's saying? That if you were to go out and interview and, and, and question the average Christian about what it means to be a Christian, that you're going to get a lot of stuff that is unorthodox, that sounds unchristian. Now, I'm a, I'm a pastor, so I have this, this target on my back, right? I get pulled into all type of stuff on social media. People will at me on Twitter or do these side conversations in Facebook. Hey, what do you think about this and this and this? Look, I worked at on a university setting, and so I know kind of what questions professors are asking. I'm just going to give you one assignment. Just talk to your family and friends. Can you talk to me about what it means to be a believer? 
And here's what you're probably going to get. A bunch of different stuff. There's a lot of noise. That some of the answers in their survey, it will make you cringe. Is Jesus God? Right? That, that, that seems like a basic question, right? Of course he is. And you get 74% of the people who say that he's created, right? That he was, was the father's first creation. When you, you ask, how is a person saved? Does your good works contribute to that? 47% of the people will say, yes, my good works contribute to me being saved, right? That, that you get this idea, of, well, do you need the church? No, I can love Jesus and I hate his church. That, that these are the questions and the answers that are out there floating. And the reason Paul praises God, the reason why these two things are praiseworthy, because when you are right with Jesus, when there is faith in Jesus alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, you are safe and secure. And one of the fruits that will come out of that is you won't just have faith in Christ. You will have a certain feeling towards Christ's bride. Those two things go together. You can't have a relationship with me. Oh, Pastor L, I love you. I love you. I love you. But I can't stand your wife. You, you see how that feels? You, you see what it does? We come as one. We come together. You, you can't do that. You can't have that. And what Paul is saying, they get it. I get it. There is faith in Jesus. Yes, they're saved. They're secure. They're sealed. And there is affection for Jesus' church. That's the fruit. The fruit. And they're inseparable, says Paul. That's what brings a prisoner to his knees. You're resting in Jesus and you love his saints. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to apologize. There's a lot of stuff going out there with what it means to be a Christian. I got to walk down the aisle and then I'll give my life to Jesus and then God will move towards me. I got to speak in tongues. And if I don't speak in tongues and I'm not a Christian, that I could give you a list that will be as long as this walkway right here. And Paul says, wait, 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 let's go back to the fundamental thing. You are a believer when there is transferring of trust in the Messiah. Right there. And one of the things that you're going to love after you embrace Jesus is his church. So if you're not a believer, I want to cancel out all the noise and say that we're sorry that we, you are hearing competing voices. If you are a believer this morning and you tend to think and equate being evangelical or Christian with your political party, with how you educate your children, with how much money you have, with being in a Presbyterian church versus a Baptist church, a multi-ethnic church versus an all-white church, an all-black church, you're missing the mark, Christian. We are known by our trust and rest in Christ alone, that that should be the one thing that when people look at, that's how I know a believer right there. They love this Jesus God with their whole life. They're betting 100 that he is the way, the truth, and the life every day, all day. There is love and affection for the Messiah. 
I'm sorry if we send the wrong message to people. And I invite you to love the Lord's church. Not in abstract, right? Not in abstract. Just like faith is not in abstract, that it has to be physical. It has to, to, to change how we live, that your love for the saints, it is not in abstract. Look on your row. Look up here. Look up there. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord and we love one another and we pray for one another and we send meals to one another and we sit across the table in growth group with one another and we support one another's missions and and we rebuke one another when we're in sin and we laugh with one another and we cry with one another and we forgive one another and we're patient with one another that that this is the way in which we express our love Christian so don't just come here and sit and think that God is happy with you coming to a church and just sitting and not plugging in. What brings a prisoner joy is they love Jesus and they love the church. And I know that's kind of hard to hear. I want you to be at Redeemer. I, I love you. I do want you to be here. But man, I so want more for you than for you to hear and worship and hear a sermon. I want you to cry with people. I want you to let people carry your burdens. I want you to use your gifts that God has given you and that he has not given them to you for you, but for the building up of the body. And if this is you and you get these two things, man, I'm thankful. And Jesus is praising. How do I know these two things are this important? Because in John 17, Jesus says, Father, they have believed all the words that you have given to me, and I pray that they might be one. You see what Jesus does in his prayer? Belief and oneness. He says, this commandment, this new commandment I give you, that you love one another. This is how the world will know that you are mine for your love for one another. That I'm just not making this up. This is in the very mind and heart of Christ that we would love each other and linger with one another and go to growth groups with one another and sit at men's dinners with one another and go on mission with one another, that we would truly love the body. So I'm going to close with this quote, and it's from a guy that I love, Paul Tripp. He says, the church is not a theological classroom. It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their faith in Christ and they gather to know and love him better and learn to love others as he has designed. Two things, inseparable. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I do ask that you would allow this to be our reality. Lord, if there is undue offense, I pray that my words would fall upon deaf ears. But if this is your word, I pray that it would stick and that your spirit would call us to go deeper into our faith and deeper into our affections for one another. May this be pleasing in your sight. May this be true for our fellowship. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.